Howdy, y'all, and welcome to The Daily Grind with your host, John Spencer. Grab a mug of your favorite brew and join me and my sister, Carla, and then get ready to brew your brain, sharpen your wit, and enrich your faith. We'll give you the rundown on today's date, share some interesting historical facts, and then toss out a few random musings just to get your brain gears turning. Plus, I'll offer up some thoughts to ponder on your walk with Jesus. So let's get this show on the road. All right. Good morning, Carla. It's Thursday. Good morning, John. Good morning, Daily Grind friends. Whew, Thursday, Thursday. No, it's Thursday, November 9th. And November 9th, Carla, is an eventful day in German history. It is called Schicksalstag or the Fateful Day. It's a day that Robert Blum was executed in 1848. Kaiser Wilhelm abdicated on this date in 1918. Okay. Hitler's Beer Hall Pusch in 1923 occurred on November 9th. Whoa. He was later arrested with members of the Nazi party, spent some time in jail where he wrote that little book, Mein Kampf. Oh, good grief. Okay. On November 9th in 1938 was the Crystal Knock. Oh. Horrible night. Night of shattered glass where they killed you. Yep. And... On this date in 1989, the Berlin Wall fell and was. Oh, okay. Yeah, all of those things occurred on November 9th. That's odd. I know. Uh, That's very Prussian, though. Right. (laughs) We got a big thing to do. Well, let's do it on the 9th. That's when we do things. Hold off. The 9th is coming. And on this date in 1799, Napoleon Bonaparte became the first consul of France and uh, took the title dictator. He did. Took it. (laughs) Owned it. Made it. Yep. (laughs) On this date in 1857, the Atlantic was founded in Boston, Mass. Like the publication? The the magazine. Yeah, the publication, The Atlantic. 1857. That's a long time. Yep. And on this date in 1906, Teddy Roosevelt again became the first sitting president of the United States to make an official trip outside of the United States. Oh, he was just full of firsts. Yes. And he went down to inspect progress on the Panama Canal. Ah, okay. Yep. And Carla, on this date in 1909... That's the date that pigs fly. What? <laughs> the first pig to fly was by English aviator John Moore uh, Brabazon, and he flew with a pig in a basket attached to his plane. Put a and pig in it. a basket and flew it. Okay. He did it just because he could, and technically he may have been the first person to fly any kind of cargo, 1909. <laughs> So oh. when people say when pigs fly, well, that's already come Been and gone. done. That's all been done. You <laughs> had to quit saying that after 1909. Oh. Tragically, on this date in 1965, Roger Allen Laporte, protesting the Vietnam War, set himself on fire in front of the United Nations building in New oh. York. Oh no! Yep. Okay. Yikes. That is a that is strong protesting. That is. Ugh. Um, and 
in on this date in 2005, the Venus Express mission of the European Space Agency was launched uh, from the Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. Oh, Kazakhstan! Yep, launching spacecraft. How about that? How about that? Yep. November 9th is go to an art museum day today. Oh, I would do that. Yeah, me too. It is Microtia Awareness Day. I was not aware, so that's good. Now I can be aware. Yeah, Microtia is that thing where the external ear is small or not formed properly. Okay. It's National Louisiana Day. National Louisiana Day. (laughs) National Louisiana Day. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And it's National Scrapple Day. Oh, okay. Now, Scrapple, if you don't know, uh, is similar to Spam. But it's, I did, apparently did not know. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a meat, loafy kind of thing made with leftover stuff. But here's the difference. They're both, they're both kind of canned or consolidated meat products. You can make Scrapple in your house. But they have differences. Spam is made from cuts of pork and ham. Scrapple's made from scraps and trimming. Scrapple contains more spices and herbs than Spam. Usually fried, always cooked. Um, oh. And you can eat Spam raw out of the can. So, Okay, then. There you Scrapple. Go. Okay. Scrapple. <laughs> and now it's the time on I'm the probably... day ground to sharpen your wit. Okay. Four years after it was released, an Arizona DJ played UB40's Red Bread Wine as part of a feature on songs that should have been hit songs but weren't. And listeners started requesting it. And within weeks, it was a number one single. It's a hit. Should have been, and now it is. Yeah. Interesting about the the band UB40. Do you know where they got the name of their band? No. UB40 is the name for the unemployment form in England. Oh, were they unemployed? Well, they were musicians. Yeah, probably. (laughs) I guess so then. Okay. Oh. Pez, Pez the candy dispensers. Yes, what was about originally it? marketed as a sophisticated adult treat. Oh, not to kids. Yeah, and the first flavors included peppermint, lemon, and chlorophyll mint. Ooh, yeah, ooh, that's exactly what I think too. <laughs> they were smart making them candies and going to kids. There you go. Yeah, good adjustment. In 1518, there was an unexplained event called the Dancing Plague in Strasbourg, in which 400 people danced for days without rest, some (laughs) until they died. (laughs) This is serious, but that is crazy. (laughs) That is a crazy way to go. And, you know, contemporary explanations for the Dancing Plague included demonic possession, overheated blood, you know, all those kinds of things. But investigators in the 20th century suggest that the afflicted might have consumed bread made from rye flour that was contaminated with the fungal disease ergot. Ooh, they just went crazy then. And and it happened in a few other cities too, yeah. Huh. There you go. Okay. (laughs) Fungal rye flour, yeah, made people go crazy. Dance yourself to death there you go yeah it's one way to go 
<sighs> dolphins. Oh, we'll throw this in too. A group of dolphins is called a pod. Okay. Yeah. I like that. So I guess if you have if you're a solitary dolphin, would you be an iPod? <laughs> so isolated pod. <laughs> you would. Um, dolphins though know each other by name, just what? like humans. Oh my goodness. With this exception, dolphin infants choose their own name while they're young. How, how do we know this? <laughs> I believe you. I'm just like, who figured this out? How did they figure this out? Oh, but yeah, you talk about studying. What do they call each other? What do they call? It? And you see things and that one and that one. Yeah, but apparently they have names. Pretty smart critters. Mm, they are. I love them. They're so fun to watch. Yes. Always so happy. Never see a mean, mad dolphin, do you? They're always yeah. happy. Yeah. Carla, silent and listen are yes. anagrams of each other. Yes, they are. I love that. I do, too. You know, one time I was uh, out late, uh, couldn't sleep, went for a walk in Germany, and we had all these cows that were <laughs> living around us. And they were out in the field wide awake, too. And I thought, it is past your bedtime. <laughs> yes, it was. Go to sleep, Cal. <laughs> hey, last week, last week we talked about Lake Superior having enough water to yes. cover North and South America in one foot so, of water. So large, yes. So I couldn't let that rest. So just <laughs> for those that you who want to know... Lake Superior contains over three quadrillion gallons of fresh water. Goodness gracious, that's a lot of gallons. Quadrillion? Yeah, I don't even know. I can't even picture it. That is, that's a bunch of zeros. Mm. Yeah, that's amazing. One out of every 5,000 North Atlantic lobsters is born bright blue. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, typically they're you know, red, reddish. Yeah. But yeah, you can have some blue ones. Blue lobster. Hmm. And Carla, we'll leave Thursday with this one. A group of jaguars. Yes. Is called a shadow. A shadow. Oh, I love it. A shadow of jaguars. <laughs> That's so mysterious. Yes. Oh. Shadow of jaguars. And now it's that time on the daily grind to sharpen your faith. Again, we're going to take another little history trip, and we're going to today talk about Alquin of York, another one of the most important scholars that you've never heard of. Alquin of York is perhaps the greatest European that no one knows about. He was a devout church deacon. He was known as the world's most learned man in the 8th century. He introduced broad education programs throughout Europe, under the patronage of Charlemagne. So students, both girls and boys, rich and poor, would learn grammar, logic, rhetoric, geometry, arithmetic, basic astronomy, what you might call a philosophy of music, to be prepared to study advanced subjects like history, theology, law. Alquin transformed Europe in a way that Romans never could have done under Charlemagne's patronage. Eventually, it gave us grand cathedral schools and major universities in the late Middle Ages. But Alquin's contribution was not merely academic. As one of Charlemagne's most beloved advisors, he somehow convinced the great king 
to stop his brutal policy of conversion or the sword. Alcuin wanted to convert pagan Europe, but he wanted to do it through gentle persuasion, not violence and taxation. You could make the claim that Alcuin was the most influential Anglo-Saxon of them all, at least on an international level. Alcuin was born in Northumbria in the 730s. We don't know exactly when, and we know very little about his background, although it's speculated that he came from a churlish family. Churl, that's a funny word. It's derived from an old English word, kale. And it refers to a person who was not of nobility, but who was also not a peasant. So was free despite being subordinate to a noble lord. And when he was a boy, Alcuin entered the school at the York Monastery during the Episcopate of Egbert, brother of King Edbert, who was then in the process of establishing York as an archbishopric. And with that undertaking, he was there was a great reorganization and revitalization of the monastery's intellectual life. The school established there specialized in providing a comprehensive education in the seven classical liberal arts. The school at York was really to have a formative effect on Alcuin and through him, the rest of Western Europe. And we'll get to that in a minute. So upon graduating in the 1750s, Alcuin became head of the York School. That's a school that was founded by Paulinus in 627, and it still exists today as St. Paul's School, and that makes it the third oldest school in the world. Alcuin was also ordained a deacon. There's no evidence to suggest that he ever became a priest. Similarly, It is unclear if he was a monk, although he certainly never married, and he lived an intensely religious life. The net effect was for Alcuin to quickly attain a reputation for learning and piety. All of that made him a prime candidate to be sent to Rome in 781 to petition the Pope for official recognition of York's archdiocese. It was on this trip to Rome while staying in the Italian city of Parma, that Alcuin met the Carolingian emperor Charlemagne, the most powerful man in Western Europe after the Pope, possibly even more powerful than the Pope. You see, Charlemagne had a vision for turning Francia into a seat of learning and religion. And to that end, he gathered around him a circle of famous men from across Europe who would help educate both him and his people. Alcuin seems to have been especially valuable since he was made the head of the court school in Aachen, making him personally responsible for the education of Charlemagne himself and his sons and the sons of nobility. It was Alcuin who introduced Charlemagne to the liberal arts, and it was through his influence that they were structured into the two-part division of the introductory trivium, grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and the advanced quadrivium, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy, which defined what we mean today as a classical education. There's some evidence for how he taught in this setting, and it's found in a book of recreational mathematic problems, which he probably wrote at some point between 791 and 799, 
The book is called The Problems to Sharpen the Young, and it's filled with word puzzles meant to encourage mathematical and logical thinking. And several of the problems that he created are still used in classrooms today in some form, like the wolf, goat, and cabbage problem. Now that's been changed and more commonly found today as the fox, chicken, and grain problem. That's the one where the farmer has to ferry all the objects over a river in a tiny boat without any of the objects being eaten by the other objects. So as well as a teacher, Alquin also acted as an advisor to Charlemagne, particularly on the issues of converting pagans. And on this topic, the emperor had a bloodthirsty zeal, and it caused him to order the death penalty for any pagan who refused baptism as part of of the decade-long Saxon wars to try to Christianize Saxony. And it roughly corresponded to modern-day northwestern Germany. So Charlemagne issued in 1782 a capitulary that is a royal ordinance that ordered that all Saxons who refused baptism were to be put to death. Now, the Saxon wars were extremely bloody, and there were mass executions, sometimes on the scale of several thousands of people. Alcuin was outraged by this, and he castigated Charlemagne in a letter where he argued that false baptism is pointless, since faith is an act of free will, and thus, while you can force a person to be baptized, you cannot force them to believe, which is essential for salvation. This argument seems to have actually worked. Charlemagne did indeed make refusal to accept baptism a non-capital offense. And soon after, despite finding success and for, well, maybe not fortune, but success and a steady career in Charlemagne's court. So despite having confronted the king, Alcuin found success and a steady career in Charlemagne's court. But he nevertheless remained fond of his home and he returned to Northumbria in 790. One of his aims in doing so seems to have been to try to reform the court of King Ethelred, who was known to enjoy putting his enemies to death in some pretty unsavory ways. However, Alquin was soon called back to Francia by Charlemagne to combat the adoptionism heresy. Alquin was soon called back to Francia by Charlemagne to combat the adoptism heresy, which had appeared in Toledo at around the same time. This was a multi-year undertaking, and it culminated in the Council of Frankfurt in 794, which, men, which among other things, formally condemned the adoptionist leaders as heretics. However, all the while, Ethelred continued his sinful ways, and Alcuin who had been forced to leave Northumbria before he could really do much good, never returned to his homeland. Adoptionism, by the way, is the heresy that says that Jesus is the adopted son of God. So the way the wind was blowing had become very clear to Alcuin by 794. And so a year before, in 793, Viking raiders had attacked Lindisfarne. And this event, spurred Alcuin to write letters to Hagebald, Bishop of Lindisfarne, Ethelherd, Archbishop of Canterbury, and to King Ethelred 
himself lamenting the attack and in part blaming Ethelred's sinfulness for inviting the wrath of God upon Northumbria and that the raids affected Alcuin so deeply he even wrote a poem based on it from the information that he'd received from contacts back in England with the intent of commemorating the horror of that day. This was all during Alcuin's final waning years. In 796, a now 60-year-old Alcuin finally retired to become the abbot of St. Martin's Abbey in Tours, where he worked for the rest of his life, perfecting the Caroline minuscule script. Now, this is the script that's the ancestor of really all our modern letter forms, and it was the first script to have spacing between words. It was there that he died in 804, having remained friends with Emperor Charlemagne for all of the intervening years. Throughout his life, Alcuin was a prolific letter writer and poet. He also composed various books on grammar, rhetoric, and theology. He advocated for Northumbrian history and Latin learning of the English in Francia, and he is also credited with the invention of the question mark. Intellectually, Alcuin played a key role in shaping the course of Western European education and learning. Arguably, maybe greater importance than Bede. For while Bede is admired for the breadth of his learning and the subtlety of his mind, Alcuin helped establish many of the basic building blocks that would shape the minds of countless generations. Thus, maybe his impact was ultimately more practical than Bede's. Now, I'm not a utilitarian, so I don't think Alcuin's impact being more practical necessarily makes him more important. But it's undeniable that this one Northumbrian of an unknown background was crucial in shaping the worldviews and lives of countless people from his own day down to our own. And if you think about it, that's pretty extraordinary. Anyway, thank you for listening today to The Daily Grind. I look forward to seeing you tomorrow. I'm so glad that our brother had influence to believe that salvation comes through faith, that people shouldn't be converted at the point of the sword, and that we have a question mark and gaps in between words. Have a great Thursday. I will see you Friday on the daily grind.